One of the staple phrases overused by business consultants, motivational speakers, and I'll admit it, preachers, is that the two Chinese characters that spell out the word crisis stand for dangerous opportunity. Now, I've read that many Chinese linguists disagree with that simplistic definition, but it's still a good talking point. A crisis, a dangerous opportunity. There are elements of truth to that definition as it relates to our current situation. There are certainly both dangers and opportunities. I mean, real dangers of becoming infected with the COVID-19 virus, dangers of infecting others when you are not displaying any symptoms, dangers of contracting the virus because you're a healthcare hero who's trying to help the sick or a first responder who can't do your job from inside the relative safety of a home. Real dangers, and I know that more and more people in our church family have a direct tie to someone who has contracted the virus or has even died because of it. And we'll see more of that before this crisis is over. And that's about as dangerous as it gets. But also there are opportunities, such as the displays of courage and commitment by those on the front lines, the doctors, the nurses, the EMTs, the, the pharmacists and others in the healthcare field, neighbor helping neighbor, and not just to get their face on TV or to post a selfie to their social media, but just because they truly care. And so there are hidden things, there are sacrifices, small and large, opportunities for businesses to retool and creatively solve problems like producing ventilators and masks and other needed equipment. We have people in our church family involved in all of those things, and I am so proud to be your pastor. As hard as this is on our church life, it is also important to see the opportunities that lie kind of within this crisis for the gospel. Over the last couple of weeks, there have been probably like 10,000 blog posts and online seminars and video forums for the church leaders that have sprung up to explore what are the real opportunities for the church. And as one presenter from the Barna Association said, the church is entering a digital Babylon and we may be here for a while. So for the church, this is an opportunity where we're forced to explore alternative ways of, of connecting and meeting together online that, that don't feel fully comfortable to me because I'm sort of old school. You know, Facebook Live, FaceTime, Zoom, Google Groups, go to meetings, all those things. And I hear someone saying right now, okay, boomer, you know. We're all being pushed into something new for the church. Small groups and committee meetings via video, financial stewardship, moving uh, to online donations rather than a plate passed in worship. That's new, but we need it to work for the church to thrive. Counseling, pastoral care happening through smartphone cameras, online classes instead of Sunday school, home-centered children's ministry, a, a digital Babylon where, where, where we need to embrace new ways of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So rather than fighting it or just chafing against it, I think we need to recognize that this is an opportunity for us to learn how to do church in a way that's not native to me, but it might be native to others, especially younger folks in the future. And we may be a big part of the future of the church even after this current crisis is over. So that's an opportunity that comes out of this crisis. How about you? Are there ways that you need to see opportunities in this crisis, even though there are real dangers? In your work, in your circle of relationships, in your family? I think it's actually better to think of a crisis not as a dangerous opportunity, but as a meeting point where something new can happen a point where various forces and influences come together, a point where new things can emerge, where there can be change, where there's an old and then there's a new. Because that's often how God works in and through change. There's an old 
And then God shows up and then there's a new. Like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone belongs to Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old things have gone. Everything is made new. This morning we're going to look briefly at a man whose life was changed when he faced a crisis. And he became a new person through Jesus Christ. His name is Joseph of Arimathea. And he's known to us mainly, really only because of one thing. He cared for the body of Jesus after it was taken down from the cross. His actions are recorded for us in all four of the Gospels, with each Gospel kind of adding various details that all combine into one this morning. But let me read now his story as it's recorded in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, starting with verse 38. Now this is Good Friday afternoon. It's after Jesus was pronounced dead, after a Roman soldier speared him in the heart, just to be 100% sure. Let me read John 19. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At a place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Amen. So I want to look at three things about Joseph of Arimathea this morning. His character, his crisis, and his change. His character, his crisis, and his change. His character. Between all the information we get about Joseph in all four Gospels, we learn a great deal about him. Gospel writers all agree he was a great guy. Matthew tells us he was a rich man. Mark and Luke mentioned that he was a community leader, one of the 70 men chosen to be members of the Sanhedrin, the highest council or court in Israel. Under the leadership of the high priest Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin was the first group to condemn Jesus. And Luke tells us that Joseph had opposed that decision, calling him a good and upright man, a godly man who was waiting for the kingdom of God. Mark says that that means that he was one of those Jews who, who read the Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, and he saw that God was up to something, that God's Messiah was on the horizon, and Joseph was one of those who stood on their spiritual tiptoes kind of to see what God might be doing, who believed that the hour had come. He was waiting, he was aware, he was eager for the Messiah to come. He was one of those faithful Jews who in his heart felt the pain of the city of Jerusalem as he walked its streets. He, he saw the, the suffering, the injustice, the misguided and corrupt leaders in the clergy. He, he sat in the council meetings, and I'm sure he bristled at the corruption, the way politics kind of putrefies faith, how God's name got used to justify all kinds of graft and dishonesty, power grabs. And his heart longed for God just to come and set it straight, wipe it clean, usher in his kingdom. So it's no wonder that he might have expect him to, to be one of those faithful, God-loving people who was drawn to Jesus. Both Matthew and John tell us that he was a disciple of Jesus. And maybe that happened through his buddy Nicodemus, who was also a colleague in the Sanhedrin. Remember, it was Nicodemus who in John chapter 3 secretly came to Jesus in the middle of the night with his questions. 
And Jesus led him to see his need to start over from the beginning, to start all over again, helped him to see his need to be born again by the Spirit. That's where that phrase originates, born again with Nicodemus in the middle of the night. And so maybe it was Nicodemus who influenced Joseph toward Jesus. But John adds something else that tells us a lot about Joseph. John writes that Joseph was a disciple, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. Nicodemus came to Jesus in the dark, while Joseph of Arimathea kept people in the dark when it came to his faith in Jesus. What was he afraid of? Well, as a wealthy member of the council, he had a lot to lose. Prestige and power, influence, respect, money. All those things could have been stripped away if he came out publicly that he was a Jesus follower. He was probably one of those who struggled really with some of Jesus' words, like what Jesus said in Luke 14, 33. Those of you who do not give up everything, you cannot be my disciples. Well, wow. I mean, that, that's probably hard for Joseph to swallow. Yes, I, wanna, I want the kingdom of God, but I didn't realize it came with that kind of a price tag. Does that sound familiar? Maybe you've said that in your own heart. Yes, I want to be a follower of Jesus, but to give up everything for Jesus, to actually surrender my whole life, my money, my career, my children, my reputation, my attitudes, surrender my home, my options, my beliefs, my dreams, my desires, to actually have to lay all that down before Jesus and say, take it, it's yours. That was maybe more than Joseph was ready to swallow. And I'm sure he had his rationalizations. You know, I won't resign from the Sanhedrin. I'll work from within the system for change. After all, God gave me my success, my money, my position. He wouldn't want me just to throw it all away. So rather than publicly aligning myself with Jesus, which would close the door to any future influence with my colleagues, I'll work behind the scenes. Yeah, that's the ticket. That's the way to do it. Go along kind of like a secret agent. I'll work from within the beast to try and bring some moderation to their hostility towards Jesus. Well, how'd that strategy work out? Not well. Not well. Jesus publicly mocked, humiliated, tortured, killed, all with the stamp of approval of Joseph's buddies on the Sanhedrin. This is Joseph's crisis, his worst nightmare, his strategy of being a behind-the-scenes influencer just got crushed under the weight of betrayal. A deal was made with the Roman rulers. Money changed hands. Politicians knew how to grease the wheels and get things done. Joseph maybe was blindsided. He was not privy to the machinations of the inner circle. Maybe he's not as powerful and influential as he thought because he was sidelined, outmaneuvered, and now Jesus is dead. You know, it's been said that adversity does not build character. It reveals it. In fact, nothing reveals a person's true character like a good crisis. All the pretenses kind of fall away. All the boasting, all the chest thumping disappear when a real crisis hits. And that's when you see what people are really made of. Those who step up and those who run away. Those who keep their promises and follow through on their commitments. And those who do nothing but make excuses. Joseph stepped up. Mark says that Joseph went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body, boldly. Whatever internal civil war that had raged in Joseph's heart, it was over. Maybe he heard the echo of Jesus' words from Luke 9, 26. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory 
and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Joseph wasn't ashamed anymore. He wasn't ashamed to be publicly affiliated with Jesus. And maybe he was a little late to the party, but let's remember that all of Jesus' disciples ran away. They all went into hiding when Jesus was arrested. You don't see any of them having the courage to go before the Roman governor and do the right thing. No, Joseph of Arimathea, he found his voice. He found his center. He throws off any shame that he might have had for failing to come out publicly in Jesus' favor earlier in the game. But better late than never. No more secret disciple. Rather than thinking somebody ought to do something for Jesus' body, he did it. He did it. Never substitute a wishbone for where your backbone ought to be. Joseph stood up straight and went boldly to Pilate. Well, why Pilate? Well, the Romans were in charge of the executions. They believed the, the gruesome spectacle of rotting corpses decaying on crosses outside of Jerusalem. They thought that was a good visual reminder to people of the fate that awarded anyone <clears throat> who, who defied their rule. The governors could deny families of the crucified the right to bury their dead and often sold that privilege as a way of lining their own pockets. If enough money changed hands, the body came down, and maybe that happened here. But after hiding his faith for so long, Joseph was no longer a secret disciple, no longer just a, a covert Christian, no longer living a lie. He was now publicly a believer, not a bystander, a follower, not a fan, a doer of faith, not a doubter. He was a disciple of Jesus. Come hell or high water, whatever the consequences to his career, to his fortune, to his reputation, he was on Team Jesus, and he didn't care who knew it. But he has to hurry. Jewish law required that the body had to be buried before nightfall when the Sabbath would begin. And once the Sabbath started, nothing could be done until Sunday morning. So Joseph is, is all in, but he needs some help, and his pal Nicodemus steps in. We're only told this in John's account, but it makes sense. It's very tough to handle a corpse all by yourself. Almost impossible. So Nicodemus volunteers, and you know, it is so much better to have a friend when you're facing grief, when you're going through a crisis, when you're facing something really difficult and tough. It is so much better to have a friend by your side, a spiritual friend whose simple presence just lifts your burden, takes away all that you're feeling that you're, you know, you're all alone. This week I got a voicemail message from an old friend, a former colleague of mine I hadn't spoken with for probably over a decade. And he said as one of his ways of dealing with his self-quarantine, he was just going through his contact list and was just praying for names as they appeared, just a few each day. And then he kind of called the ones that he thought he should, you know, like the Holy Spirit prompted him to. And mine was one of those names. And that was just a real blessing to me, just to know that he was thinking of me enough to call. That was good for me. And so I called him back, and we had such a great conversation just reconnecting after way too long. Joseph wasn't a Lone Ranger. Nicodemus was there, too. He was a friend, and he was also a man of courage. If you remember, Nicodemus spoke out in Jesus' favor early on in John 7 when the council was first taking up arms against Jesus. And maybe that's what Joseph really needed was a spiritual brother to kind of lock arms with because that kind of helps build momentum when we join with others. Even, even digitally, synergy can still happen. You're more than double your strength when you lock arms with other believers. You multiply your courage. And that's why faith in Jesus is always a team sport. We're not supposed to fly solo. We need each other as the body of Christ. 
That's the wisdom of Ecclesiastes 4.9 that says two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. So together they gather Jesus' body, begin the preparation for his burial. Matthew tells us the tomb belonged to Joseph. Maybe it was for himself or a, a pro, as a prominent citizen. He was preparing a larger tomb for his extended family. These were small caves hand-carved into the soft stone that are very common in the Middle East. And some of you I know have traveled to Petra, the site in southern Jordan, where there are literally thousands upon thousands of tombs of all different sizes and shapes carved into the rock. Well, this was Joseph's tomb. And think about that for a second. After the resurrection, to know the place where your body will eventually be laid had once experienced the supernova of resurrection power for the body of Jesus, your body lying in the exact same spot where Jesus' body burst forth in resurrection glory. I mean, wow, there is no fear in death when you know that. No fear in death, not for Joseph. His tomb had already seen one resurrection. But they did not know that yet. Instead, they carefully followed the ritual. They wrapped Jesus' body in linen, and with each turn, they added a layer of spices that preserved the body, 75 pounds worth. But they had to rush. They didn't finish completely. That's why the two Marys had to come early to the tomb on Sunday to finish the job. But Joseph and Nicodemus got enough done, so Jesus' body was washed and covered and cared for. It was enough. And so they exited the tomb, and we're told that they rolled the huge wheel of stone into the notch so that the tomb was finally sealed. Courage doesn't mean a person has no fear. Courage is having fear, but doing the right thing anyway. Something clicked in Joseph's mind so that he was no longer a secret disciple. And as I said earlier, nothing reveals character like a crisis. I find that when I'm under pressure, I learn more about myself than at any other time. My cracks, my weaknesses, my true motivations, and my strengths. The temptation is to convince ourselves that our reactions under pressure or in a crisis that that's the exception to the rule. That, you know, I was stressed out and that's why that happened so quickly. But I think our actions in times of crisis reveal more about who we are than we really care to admit. When it's a crisis point, are really a window into what God wants to do next in our lives. What if we didn't dismiss them? What if we use these crisis points as a window into our souls and see them as a huge opportunity for growth? It's easy to spot how other people respond in a crisis. You know, the boss who loses her temper when challenged at a staff meeting, uh, the spouse who gets defensive when, every time a suggestion is made. Uh, we can write all that off as just instinctive, but what gets revealed in crisis is actually our character. Does crisis show you who you really are, for better or for worse? What are you learning about yourself in these current moments, your strengths, your weaknesses? You know, there are too many people in Americanized Christianity who say they love God, claim to follow Christ, who pledge their allegiance to Him on Sundays, but for the rest of the week they are secret Christians, silent Christians. Maybe our current crisis would be a good time for that to stop. For people to own their faith, to fully honor their Lord. The life of Jesus was enough to draw Joseph in, but it was seeing and understanding, experiencing his death that actually made him step over the line and fully commit to Team Jesus. If in the past, or even now, you see yourself as a secret disciple, I urge you to step over the line today. 
Be willing to make yourself known as a very imperfect disciple, an imperfect follower of Jesus, because none of us do it well. That's why we need a Savior. Because if we could do it ourselves, we would have done it ourselves, and we can't. So boldly proclaim the promise of Jesus who said, all those who stand before others and say they believe in me, I will say before my Father in heaven, they belong to me. It's Matthew 10, 32. Amen. And that brings us to this table. The table of our Lord's last meal with his disciples, the Passover meal, where he showed himself to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I have to admit this feels a little awkward today. It's hard enough figuring out how to preach to an empty room. I mean, literally, it's me and Rick, and he's a distance away. So to do communion in an empty room, that, that's even a greater struggle for me today. There's been a lot of theological debate going on in our denomination as to whether or not distance communion should even be allowed. But these are unprecedented questions that no one has ever had to ask before. Not being in the same you know, physical space, does that somehow nullify the purpose and the effect of the sacrament? Connecting via video, is that a legitimate way to be the body of Christ? Well, your pastors and your elders came down on the side that though not ideal, this way of doing Holy Communion still honors the intent of the sacrament, which is to bind us to the Lord Jesus and to each other. Jesus said, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them, Matthew 18, 20. So we can gather in homes and know the presence of Christ in our fellowship. And if you're alone, how much more do you need to connect with your brothers and sisters in Christ, even through this means? So if you'd like to prepare your bread and your cup, go ahead and get things now and let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the way you have drawn us to yourself. And even though we are separated by distance, we are not separated by your spirit. We are united in the spirit of the Lord who penetrates each one of our hearts and draws us to the cross and to the empty tomb. We thank you, Lord, that you set it up so beautifully by using the Passover celebration to say that your body broken and your blood shed would be symbolized by this bread and by this cup. And so we now pray, Lord, and ask that you would sanctify these elements to our use and even the elements in every single home who's watching today. These elements would be, for us, the living bread the bread of eternal life, and it would be for us the living vine, Jesus Christ. Lord, would you consecrate these elements for your own glory? And would you take us now as your disciples, Lord, imperfect as we are, help us to boldly step up and be on your team. We thank you now. In your name we pray. Amen. And so on the night when Jesus was betrayed, we're told that he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, and he said, Take and eat. This is my body given for you. And in the same manner, after the cup, after the meal, he took the cup, the last cup of the Jewish Seder, the cup of blessing. And he said, this cup is now a new covenant, a new agreement. It's sealed with my blood. Take and drink, all of you. And so offering this in Jesus' name, proclaiming his death until he comes again, we invite you now to join in the sacrament together. Take your bread. Just pause and pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the living bread, the bread of life, who feeds us spiritually all the way down into our souls.
the body of Christ broken for you. Jesus said, I'm the vine and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And don't we know that? We try. We do our best efforts. And we still come up short. It's because we need a Savior. And this is what represents his sacrifice, his blood for each one of us. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ shed for you. Take and drink now. Let's pray together one more time. Our Lord, we're grateful that we've had this very imperfect way for us to join together as your body. Unite us through your Holy Spirit, Lord. And throughout this week, help us to reflect on what it means that you were willing to sacrifice yourself so completely for each one of us, that our sins have been erased, forgiven, taken out of your mind, Lord, you don't even remember our sins anymore. And you give us grace in return, your undeserved, unmerited favor. Help us to receive that this week, even as we reflect on your death and your coming again. We thank you now, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.